0: Hello, and welcome to episode 42 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. I'm your host, Chris Brown. Academia was once thought of as the best job in the world, a career that fosters autonomy, craft, intrinsic job satisfaction, and vocational zeal. And yet, you'd be hard pressed to find a lecturer who believes that now. Indeed, there's a strong correlation between the marketisation and commercialisation of higher education over the last 30 years and the psychological hell now endured by its staff and students. In his new book, Dark Academia, How Universities Die, Peter Fleming delves beyond the glossy brochures of smiling students and lingering misconceptions of life in the ivory tower into the hidden underbelly of the neoliberal university It is a world dogged by mental illness and self-harm, authoritarian managerialism, students as consumers, and ever more competitive individualism, which casts a dark sheen of alienation over departments. All this, of course, has only been intensified by the pandemic. Well, we're joined on the show today by Peter Fleming to talk about his new book, which as ever is 50% off for podcast listeners through plutobooks.com. Just use the coupon podcast at the checkout. And we're also joined on the show today by Simon Lilly, Professor of Information and Organisation at the University of Leicester's School of Management, and we'll be talking about some of the ways in which the themes of the book are playing out in real time at Leicester. Now before we get underway, I should firstly issue something of a content warning. Our conversation today does deal with some particularly troubling themes, including depression and suicide. Bearing all that in mind, it is now my pleasure to welcome to the show Peter Fleming and Simon Lilly. So, yeah, brilliant. Peter, Simon, thank you both very much for joining us today. We're here to discuss Peter's uh, brilliant new book, Dark Academia, How Universities Die. So just on that last point, the, sub- yeah, the subtitle of the book is How Universities Die. And people might assume, uh, given that this has been published now, uh, that this is in response to the events of the last 18 months. Uh, you know, COVID obviously wrought havoc on everything, including higher education. But actually, Peter, you're talking about trends of marketization and commercialization that have been sort of 30 or more years in the making. And if neoliberalism is the cause of death, then, you know, at the same time, it would be misleading to suggest that everything was sort of rosy in the past for universities. So could you start off by maybe just giving us a little bit of insight into, you know, when the modern university emerged and how it evolved over time? And then, I guess, speak a little bit to this current phase that we're in. Sure. So the modern university really emerged
1: uh, towards the end of the 19th century and really took off with the US-orientated model of mass education called the academic revolution and really kind of become an interesting conduit, if you like, for wider societal contradictions during the 1960s and 1970s it must be remembered that we don't want to romanticize the university it's always been a very elitist space mm. but during the mid to uh, late 20th century was democratized to a certain extent with uh, mass education being considered a norm things like the GI bill in the united states were very important for that the welfare state in the in the uk and other countries kind of mimicking that model become very important for wider discussion regarding what democracy means, what knowledge means and so forth. But what happened at was a turning point in the early 1990s was the shift of turning this mass education into a mass industry. And I think that's when we see tuition fees creep in and then a whole set of transformations with the university as an institution being, I guess, hijacked by a managerial objective with the mandate from government policymakers to treat the institution as if it was a business, as if it was a business. Of course, most universities are publicly funded and the private ones, particularly in the US, are are actually tax-free charities. But uh, the idea is to treat these organizations in the name of accountability, in the name of efficiency, and taxpayers money well spent as if it was a business and this is when you see the transformation of collegiality you see the transformation of academic cultures and the transformation of student cultures into this what I call the factory in the book uh, into a business um, an institutionalized business with commercial agendas and commercial objectives and managerial hierarchies and various kind of performance measurements and so forth that come along with that. So the book was actually written before the COVID-19 pandemic hit. And I remember when the pandemic really kind of took off I was thinking, oh, wow, so this could change the face of higher education, but let's wait and see. And then by mid-2020, of course, the book was out of date, and I don't think I'd even submitted it to uh, Mm -hmm. Pluto. It's the first time I've ever written a book that was out of date before I'd actually submitted the manuscript, which was a bit shocking. Mm -hmm. But what was even more shocking was that I didn't really have to change much to get it in sync with the tumult, if you like, of what was happening in uh, universities As the managerial kind of clampdown reacted to the COVID 19 using the crisis as a way of kind of, I guess, um, enforcing and enacting draconian policies that were probably always in the background, but no, there was no good kind of cover story on which to implement these changes. And so, what I think has happened is that, you know, and these are some of the more kind of, I guess, salient points in the book that the cracks and fissures were actually there before. Covid nineteen swept away some of the sureties of higher education. It's just brought out those cracks and fissures, and really brought them into stark relief. And so we can see these tensions that were there beforehand, but now the kind of the drape, if you like, of collegiality and what university means have been swept away, and we're seeing the realities of what a institution driven purely by commercial interests and the edgy factory logic. What we're seeing this uh, happening now is uh, this logic coming out of the shadows and we're seeing the full force of it. So that's what the book is about.
0: Mm, Yeah, I mean, you've touched on a number of those uh, dark undercurrents, I think you you say in the book, resulting from this kind of trend of marketization. So the top down management, uh, managerialism, sorry, you know, this kind of uh, authoritarian turn, um, the tyranny of metrics and KPIs and outputs, Mm -hmm. Uh, you look at student debts, sort of depression and suicide, sort of some pretty dark stuff in there. And it'd be definitely good to go into some of these in more depth. but perhaps a, a good starting place. One, one phrase that jumped out from the book at me was, uh, as an employee, you might be on your own, but you certainly won't be left alone, which touches on a few of these themes. So could you sort of unpack a little bit what you what you meant by that?
1: Yeah, sure. So everyone kind of uses this term neoliberalism and the neoliberalization of the university and higher education. But I think it's a little bit more of a complex story because... It is still a very, and particularly in the public sector and public funded organisations, you know, it's, it's a lot of money coming from the government, going into institutions of higher education. So it's not free market and it's not kind of like an open free market in the classic neoliberal sense. So there's this simulation process of trying to mimic, if you like, large corporations and what we see there is the two kind of almost contradictory logics kind of unfolding. The first is the individualization of neoclassical economic reason, in which individuals are basically ranked and measured and promoted and evaluated as individuals as if they were competing in the marketplace. And academics have certainly made the best of this. Uh, with the REF in the UK and other kind of incentive systems for career progression. But at the same time, um, you're on your own, but you're not left alone. We have running alongside this what I call bureaucratic collectivism. So a very strong bureaucratic, heavy-handed, managerial, institutional uh, collectivism that runs alongside this individualization process. Now I think that's something quite unique in higher education and the so-called neoliberalization of the university over the recent decades, because you can have both this kind of very sharp and very brutal economic individualization, but heavy-handed managerialism at the same time. So that's something I've tried to capture in the book and try and capture what happens to us as academics when we are in the midst of all of this, because you have the worst of two worlds, you have the anxiety of market individualism, but then you're kind of monitored and you're surveyed and bossed around as if, you know, we're in a very collective bureaucratic space. So I think that's quite an interesting development in the way in which higher education institutions have been governed.
0: Mm, Yeah, definitely. I mean, one thing that recurs again and again is, um, this kind of idea of perverse outcomes or unintended sort of consequences of a lot of these changes. So, you know, free market capitalism supposedly valorizes efficiency. And know when you've applied that same logic in the context of universities, it seems to result in exactly the opposite. So you have these kind of bloated, top heavy, inefficient bureaucracies that just create, I think you refer to it as like, you know, a lot of sludge work and everything. Yeah, why has this been the case? Why all these kind of unintended sort of outcomes?
1: Well, I think it's the same in any institutional context where this very idealistic, abstract notion of market individualism is applied in real-world context. You know, you get all of these kind of weird outcomes where individuals try and game the system. You have classic kind of unintended consequences from over bureaucratization to the extent where I've actually seen a committee being set up to try and figure out why there are so many committees in the university. You know, a classic example where email also was once deemed to be something that would increase communication and increase our efficiency has done the exact opposite simply because of the surfeit of email communications and so forth. So I think when this really idealistic and idealised notion of economic reason is applied in institutional contexts, you will never see it being replicated like it is in the neoclassical uh, economic textbooks. You will have all of the social stuff and the unintended consequences coming from that. And they are really kind of in full flow, I think, in higher education, where you have, for example, management that was designed to create efficiencies in the university proliferating to such an extent that, where senior management seems to be growing at this exponential rate quite incredibly, almost of its own accord, where even senior managers are wondering how how on earth is this happening. Or you have performance measurements that were once designed to gauge the productivity, often using metrics of academics, becoming not only the means to measure these kind of productive outcomes, but the ends themselves, and creating all of these perverse incentives along the way. So I think it's one one consequence, or one, I guess, cause of um, this is just this wholesale commitment to a very abstract ideal of what a commercially viable institution should look like.
2: And indeed what a market should look like, Pete. I mean, I think one Mm. of the intriguing things about that process that you're describing there is the immense amount of effort that seems to go in to making a market as if there wasn't one in place before. Mm -hmm. So prior to the changes you're talking about, clearly, you know, there was an ecosystem of universities in various different countries. And people had views about which ones were good and which ones were bad and which ones might be particularly good or particularly bad for particular things. And they made choices in the face of that. And then since this kind of unrolling that you, I, I think I'd probably date back slightly earlier, I think its roots are pre-90s and you can see some of the um, the groundwork being laid in the preceding couple of decades, the immense amount of effort into trying to create market signals or n- new and weird and wonderful market signals. So, you know, research assessment exercises or excellence frameworks in the UK, bizarre employability statistics. All these things that kind of render the consumer in the marketplace almost as a complete and utter idiot that they cannot discern the signals that the existing market is, 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 is somehow emanating to enable them to make a, an informed choice. But rather, it, the, the choice has to be articulated for them, painted by numbers and placed before them as a kind of dashboard Against which they would uh, they they could quickly and easily make exactly the right decision, as if there were no nuance to the world, as if there were nothing to choice.
1: Definitely, definitely, and that heavy-handed interventionist strategy of government policy, definitely an important uh, part of the puzzle. I think because everyone talks about universities competing in this open marketplace, you know, and swimming or sinking. But there's been a strong, strong influence from government policy to prop up the system that's clearly failing as it props up other industries. um, The term kind of a privatised Keynesian approach, I guess, would be one that comes to mind in which it seems that the ruling government of the day, once it's cake and eat it, wants to have these commercial-like institutions, but also... Run them in a very, very strict way according to the policy uh, recommendations of various right-wing think tanks. It's, a, it's an interesting blend of the two.
2: Yeah, irony as well, isn't it? That the uh, you know the kind of key thinkers of that sort of neoliberal approach to the world would see nothing worse than a government-designed market. That's worse than government control, I think.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, exactly, exactly, and uh, and I think this is uh, this is kind of interesting in the way in which we use the term neoliberalism, you know, because it's quite misleading in some ways. In which this idea of the free individual competing simply on their own on an on a unregulated market, um, higher education is very much not like that, and the institutions that we've seen growing in higher education kind of reflect reflect this weird blend of heavy-handed state intervention in a very kind of, if you like, uh, in a very brutal sense, um, blended with this kind of ethos and ideology of commercialism. It's a fascinating blend.
2: Yes, yeah, it's, the, it's a, an unerring ability to find the sour spot where they get the worst of two systems and blend them together. <laughs> exactly,
1: exactly. And in the middle of it are you and I. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, Simon, seeing as you're with us, um, maybe like, because we were just, you know, chatting before we clicked the, the record button and you were saying how a lot of what's in the book kind of resonated with things that either you've had done to you or you've kind of had to endure and and do. So um, could you tell us a little bit about uh, what's been going on at Leicester University where you're based? Because a lot of people listening probably won't be necessarily aware of of what's been happening with uh, the plans for sort of extensive redundancies and so on. So yeah, could you speak a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I I certainly can, Chris, thanks. I mean, there's a a short history here and a slightly longer one. Mm -hmm. So the short history is there was an attempt to kind of engage in a pre-change conversation, as the bureaucracy now describes such moments just before Christmas, Uh, and the outcome of that was a set of missives flying out on the 18th of January, um, I believe the most depressing day of the year by most measures, (laughs) and the first day of teaching for academics within the University of Leicester, which articulated uh, a desire to Reduce headcount by something in the order of 60 full-time equivalent staff members, which was about 146, I think, labouring bodies. Mm. And there's been an extensive process gone on where people have been variously forced onto taking so-called voluntary redundancy. Others have left in disgust. Some have been redeployed. And then there's a rump of us left of about 26, I think, who are now still facing compulsory redundancy and are currently nearly a month into our three-month dismissal notice. Um, the grounds are variable. There's professional services staff being hit by this and, and, and five academic areas. And this is apparently only phase one of what's going on, although in an a, a attempt to kind of buy off the academic part of that equation, it's been made very loudly clear that there are no academic further academic redundancies envisioned in phase two. But I would be very surprised if we only end up with a phase one and a phase two, looking at the kind of shifting government policy and the nature of funding challenges in the institution and the kind of backstory here seems to be that this is a a university that in the face of increasingly finding itself in a more etiolated relationship with government finance has grasped various aspects of the free market and the private sector with with alacrity so we have more and more exotically funded borrowing producing more and more exotically funded buildings Uh, And of course, with a pandemic and a number of those buildings relying upon the rents that come from students, you've got the kind of perfect storm. You've spent the money. You've got some liabilities in some cases, because some of this is off balance sheet, special purpose vehicle financing going through weird and wonderful brokerage units in the Bermuda with a number of private equity bondholders at the end receiving payments for indexing payments for half a decade which can only be being furnished by the income streams from student rents. And you've got students not being able, under government decree, to come and pay their rents. And indeed, uh, a kind of growing resentment on the part of the students about the way in which they've been taken for a ride and them increasingly engaging in practices like rent striking. It's a a difficult situation, but it's uh, not being made better by faux attempts to manage as if these people were business people. They're not, they make bad decisions, and they are endlessly fleeced by those who are, are eager to do deals with people with so little understanding about the deals that they're undertaking. Mm.
1: So Simon, that's a great example of what we were talking about before th- this post neoliberal phase, you know, because the classic moment of neoliberalism in the university would be they don't care what your research is as long as you're hitting the top journals or getting the grant income. Um, the content of the research is not really of much consequence, but here it seems that high-performing staff are being threatened with redundancy for purposes that are not really related to their performance.
2: Indeed. I mean, my, you know, we've all been told all of us who are, are continuing at risk of – well, not at risk of – who have been issued with redundancy notices – in the School of Business, we're all being told that there's nothing wrong with the quality of either our teaching or our research, that it's of high standing. Indeed, one of my colleagues is in a similar position to me as Gibson Burrell. I find it hard to think of an individual within the academy who is more prominent, has has greater influence, has greater significance. His work is where the mainstream is going to be in the future and has mm-hmm. been throughout the, his, his academic career. I mean, what we are told is that our research is of the wrong nature, that we our interests in political economy and critical management studies, as they've been deemed by the powers that be, are somehow not aligned with future school strategic priorities, despite the fact there is no school strategy published. So I find this one massively entertaining. I'm being sacked because of a lack of alignment with a strategy that nobody knows, that apparently doesn't exist and certainly hasn't been communicated. And it seems to be on some sort of, you know, one's best guess is, let's take the most benign view, it's that there is some sense that somehow managers are unable or unwilling or uninterested in coping with reflections upon what might be problematic or difficult or challenging or go wrong in the way in which organisations are formed, uh, funded and managed. Yet experience doesn't suggest that. When we were quite upfront for about a decade over the fact that we were going to be critical of our own practice and critical of the practice of of, of others in management, the school enjoyed phenomenal success. It came top in the first couple of the student um, satisfaction surveys, uh, which obviously you talk about in the book in in, in less benign (laughs) terms. It came very near the top of various league tables, peaking at second in the Guardian, I think had virtually no staff turnover and did incredibly good things and had an extraordinarily good reputation. But I think it also ended up as a home because of that nature of its inquiry and, and, and the way in which it encouraged critical thought. It ended up with a number of people within it who've taken significant roles in in the union and as otherwise governance has broken down are founding themselves trying to hold management to account to the limited procedures they do have. And my My more cynical sense of what's going on is those people are being cleared out before phases three, four, five, and six to make sure that there's nobody standing up for the people that are being marched out at that point.
1: So this is a very brazen act of managerialism. It's uh, quite extreme. Uh, Do you think that they're just trying to get away with as much as they can? Um, And is there no thought, do you think, happening at the executive level about poisoning the well. So the, those that who are left after this very, very brazen and brutal um, axing of jobs, morale would be extremely low. Um, everyone would be wanting to leave the institution. Is that something that's crossed their mind, do you think?
2: It's very hard to work out what's going on in their mind. I mean, I think, you know, a number of the things you pick up in the book in terms of a kind of particular, you know, the, the way in which the cadre that manage are increasingly absolutely remote from the cadre that uh, deliver the value-adding activity on the ground it is really being borne out here. And I don't doubt that the pandemic's had a role. I mean, senior managers have often been bunkered in universities and increasingly so, and more and more only hearing the views of themselves about what's right and proper. Uh, and that tends to produce a kind of form of group thing, a, a form of us and them. But if you imagine that, exacerbated and uh, hyperbolized by being only able to speak to each other via zoom calls and the like and thus only probably only speaking to again even more exclusively the cadre who who seem to share your view. and again, mm-hmm. I have no sense whether they all share the view or not. We can't get access to any minutes. we can't understand any decision making. and when any of them appear in public to uh, to kind of address the issues, they obviously take a kind of propaganda corporate line in terms of, Lining up behind the narrative that's been agreed from on high, it seems like it's probably come from the, the the head of council down. And again, you talk about this very eloquently in the book. And I think that's where the point I was trying to get to in terms of the uh, the longer durée here. I think some of the dismantling of the ways in which collegiality never perfect but but considerably better than it was used to function in university governments started unfolding in the 70s and 80s as government governance structures in universities were gradually removed and more and more lay people were brought in at a higher level to make sure that under a kind of public choice theory analysis that these uh, ivory tower figures were being held to account and were doing something useful and I don't think we noticed it happening at the time It's like a frog being boiled. Mm. It's only at the time that we needed to turn around and use those mechanisms to try and push back that we realised the mechanisms were gone or we had no role in them anymore.
1: And do you think this is uh, union busting to a certain extent? It seems um, from what I've seen that there seems to be a high proportion of union members, active union members, who have been issued these redundancy notices. Do you think that's part of the ideological drive here And what role is the union going to have after this has happened?
2: Yes, I mean, certainly to the untrained eye, I obviously wouldn't want to say anything libelous here, but it does seem extraordinarily unlikely that if you were trying to make from my department, it's now nine people redundant, that you'd rely upon seven active union reps. That doesn't seem to be a statistical likelihood if it was being driven by something other than that factor. I think it's a real struggle for the union because uh, it's difficult to hold together at the moment in the face of very different pressures on different parts of the institution. Uh, Obviously, there are parts of the institution that are really worried about things like the academic boycott that's running at the moment and that dissuading students from applying because they're more than aware of the equation linking the number of students coming to the likelihood of their jobs persisting. In the business school, as I say, it's somewhat—it's even more odd. We're in a growing area of the university with a growing market. We're being explicitly told that our research and our teaching is of high quality, yet somehow we're redundant because we're not doing the right sorts of things. So I guess my kind of caution to my colleagues who are, who are keen to ensure that uh, you know, the, the, the students continue to flow is a flow of students doesn't seem to be anything that acts as a shield in the face of, of the sorts of managerialism that's going on here. We've also got the same problem out with the university. In the UK, at least, it's not at all clear who is holding the prime card in terms of regulating the way in which universities are governed and managed, nor indeed the extent to which they are somehow independent of shifting ideological whims on the parts of, uh, as you as you rightly point out, you know, right-wing think tanks, governments, various interested bodies all want to get their oar in and try and suggest what universities should be for. Uh, and university seems to have forgotten what they might be for themselves.
1: And it makes you wonder, looking at the university, you know, the role of government funders, uh, particularly in the public sector, obviously, has such a huge influence on the direction and the tone of the institutions themselves. It makes you wonder how many vice chancellors and um, senior executives in, in, in the institutions are also worried about what's happening at the moment. In terms of the higher education system, there seems to be a little bit of tension between the senior managers of many universities at the moment and the Minister of Universities in the government. So it's an interesting tension there as well.
2: Yeah, and yeah, and it seems to be you know, and I don't think this is any of this is UK specific. This is being played out in you know in slightly different variations uh, across, particularly the Anglo world. Uh, again, as you pick up. I mean, I was a senior, I was a relatively senior manager in the university for about six years. I ran, I ran the uh, School of Management as it then was for six years. Yeah. And frequently, people, you know, lots of us would share similar disquire, uh, including, you know, with colleagues considerably more senior in the hierarchies as these hierarchies get further and further extended. But it didn't seem to be something you could say publicly. It didn't seem to be something that had license to be shared more widely. And in effect, one found oneself attempting to navigate the impossible. Uh, I mean, I used to think of myself effectively as spending my days trying to put up an umbrella to stop shit landing on the people I was responsible for (laughs) in order to give them a chance to actually engage in what they were employed to do. And again, you capture this beautifully in the book, the perverse nature of what one spends one's time doing, all well-intentioned, you know, I don't think, you know, I don't get any sense that either of us are sitting here thinking that there's a bunch of people retreating into a dark room to come up with what's the most evil plan to make life appalling for everybody else and break the institutions in which they work. But in concert, that's the outcome of their actions.
1: Indeed. Indeed.
2: And it's a, it's a difficult one to get your head around, isn't it? And I, I can see why you end the book with the, uh, with the concern about whether, whether hope is possible or justified in such circumstances.
1: Well, that uh, begs the question of looking forward. You know, it's a pretty dark situation in which the industry and the sector is in. Do you think hope is warranted?
2: I mean, there is still something. You know, there are still moments where I mean, I you know recently supervised an undergraduate student who was he's an NFL fan and he was interested in the ways in which different sports people were talked about in relation to their ethnicity and in relation to their the positions they play by, by, by commentators. And we've had a lovely time working on that. I've really enjoyed talking to him. He's been reading some extraordinary stuff that I don't think he'd have come across otherwise. I've been learning some intriguing things about NFL. It's not my favourite sport. but And there, there's been real connection there. There's been real collective learning. We've come to understand each other better. We've come to understand bits of the world better we've deployed and refined our reason. And again, one can find that going on in the classroom on occasions on a broader scale. But as you rightly know, it's very difficult to see that operating much when you've got a a class of 700 and you're effectively doing stand-up comedy in the vain hope that somebody might read something on the reading list as a result of one of the jokes you make landing.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. And um, I think also, I don't think I would have written this book if I didn't feel... That there was something still to protect, and to kind of pursue and fight for. Um, if it was truly a lost cause, I probably wouldn't have wrote the book. I would have done something else.
2: Yeah, and it's uh, vain is not the word I'm looking for, but it's that it's that, it's that kind of hope without hope that uh, that is that, that really gets you though I think, and it's probably right at the root of the, the sorts of malaise and and the pain and the physical suffering that you you also draw out i mean during my years as head of department we were teaching at such a scale just in that one department and you know and the uk is certainly not operating the biggest scale of programs and operation in the in the english speaking world we had relatively standard letters of condolence to go out to the families of students who had died while studying with us i had to navigate two student su- suicides as head of department in you know that were as distressing and as Wrenching of the social fabric, as those you describe in the book, it's uh, it seems to be part of the job, and you kind of or it's presented and you live it as part of the job, and you kind of get through it the best you can, and I guess in a sense you trap yourself by thinking at least it's me trying to do this with some element of sensitivity as opposed to how it could be done, but it's uh, it's not the pretty world of. Pipe smoking tweed jackets that you're uh, that you mention your your neighbour implicitly invoking when uh, when when bumping into you one day.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. Or or the brochures, you know, uh, that are kind of pitching the next uh, amazing program to prospective students.
0: I was interested to maybe touch on some of that stuff that we've we've just been talking about there, with you know some of the darker stuff, the suicides and the the crisis in mental health, um, because you make some interesting points about the ways in which the unjust social settings induce feelings of worthlessness more often than they do sort of, I don't know, those of indignation or, or revolt. There was just, yeah, some some interesting stuff in the book about the relationship between the sort of atomization of neoliberalism and the effect it has on our psyche. Yeah, could you could you talk about why there's this epidemic of... Suicide and and mental health crisis more broadly. Yeah, sure. So the chapter on
1: students and uh, I delve into the wave of student suicides um, in universities around the world was very very difficult to write. You know, it's um, hard to really put yourself in that kind of frame of mind where things are so extreme that it's easier to jump off a building than to continue. So. And I was just just really interested to figure out what the connection was between that sort of extreme mental health situation and the institutional environment that seemed to be enclosing and and framing that type of behaviour. And for students and for academic staff alike, there's been a strong Kind of, I guess, correlation whether it's causation or not. It's always very, very difficult when it comes to these types of things, suicidal ideation and so forth. But uh, what we've seen universities morph into, you know, tend to tend to imply tend to imply certain types of psyches that are prone to these problems. You know, easily over overwork and stress. You know, comes to mind. But then you have the anxiety and the fear that are associated with. Performance metrics and the competitive ethos that's been actively nurtured in universities. And with students, this just pressure to perform, you know, this really, really strong pressure to perform and to equate your grade point average with the, the value of your personhood. And I think that uh, the chickens are coming home to roost with that institutional environment. You're going to have some very dark undercurrents um, emerging from that. Um, almost inevitably. So the argument that neoliberalism leads to mental health um, problems, depression, um, anxiety, and so forth, tends to focus on that atomization that has been mentioned, that individualization. But I also wanted to look at not necessarily the loneliness and the lone individual, but also that bureaucratic collectivism, the influence that has as well. Not a lack of people, but um, too many people of the of the wrong type. I think I describe it in the book, and what that does to the mental health of faculty and to a certain extent students, who I think probably have a different experience of the university compared to academics who are employed, and who obviously are targeted by the regions of manage- management and performance measurement. So that collective. Bureaucratization, I think, has a a certain effect on individuals, particularly related to power relations and authoritarianism. You know, authoritarianism has been shown in many, many organisations and many industries, not simply just uh, higher education, but it does have a belittling and disempowering effect on those who are at the lower end of any power relationship, and I think we're seeing that to a certain extent in universities as well. But I really wanted to point out that dark underbelly, that really dark side of the modern university, because I think if you talk to people on the street, you know, the general public still have this image that Simon was talking about of the Tweed Jackets, you know, they have this image of university professors who have a very relaxed lifestyle, you know, and uh, have have time to contemplate. And that may still happen in the Ivy League colleges of the US and maybe Oxbridge, but probably not really happening there either. But, if you look at the rest of the universities in the higher education system, boy, they are pressure cookers, and people are buckling under the pressure
2: and the dis- i mean the disjuncture between the imaginaries and the imaginaries that are sold and the experience of being there, particularly for certain individuals who find themselves in certain places you know or already struggling in in other ways is is extreme i mean the the mismatch between a kind of carefree student experience and ratcheting debt, and particularly if you're from a certain class fraction, the need to uh, the need to supplement even that debt with ongoing um, part-time work, increasingly not part-time but uh, but 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 full-time in order to be able to manage the kind of free and easy finding yourself notion of what what goes on as a student at university, as opposed to the fact you can't even find your lecture theatre and nobody knows who you are or what you're doing. I mean, one of the most tragic things I had to deal with as head when we did have, you know, significant issues with uh, student mental health, including people, you know, tragically taking their own lives, is that, you know, as soon as the investigation would start, you'd have a policeman contact you and say, could you put me in touch with the student's personal tutor? I'd like to know something more about their frame of mind. And you're left with, you know, you couldn't really say it, but the sense of, I very much doubt that the, personal tutor would even know what, who the person was given the scale of operation they are they are trying to tend to. And indeed, the likelihood that particularly somebody falling into a, a, a bad place in regard to mental health, they're very unlikely to be the person that's coming and knocking on your door. They're very unlikely to be the person sitting at the front in the small group seminar. They're probably not going to even be attending the 700-person lecture.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I, I mean, I was a university... Coming up for fifteen years ago now, but yeah, I met my personal tutor once. I think. I mean, could you say either of you a bit more about like what the workload is like for this growing pool of labour, sort of at the bottom in universities? The, you know, people who are on these short-term contracts, these sort of adjunct faculty, and so on. Because some of the statistics in the book are sort of staggering about the expectations placed on most junior and indeed more senior uh, academics.
2: Yeah, I think the pandemic, that the, the way in which Pete was talking about the pandemic, is is really instructive here. It was horrifying to witness the ways in which a kind of notion of core and peripheral workforce was brutally enacted from the second that the possibility of restricted cash flow around the uh, implications of the pandemic became clear. So first of all, all discretionary spending was stopped. Then uh, almost immediately after. There were no new contracts to be issued to those on fixed term or temporary contracts. Then quite quickly, some of those contracts were terminated. And then it took a while longer before we actually started gunning for the core faculty. So it's a defense in depth model for the institution. But the precarity that's carried by those on the on the periphery of that model is is monstrous. Absolutely monstrous. I mean, we are paying people now to teach classes less than I was paid, and I don't mean taking into account inflation, less than I was paid when I was a PhD student in the early 1990s.
1: Yeah, that, that um, casualization process has been truly exploited by the university over the last 15, 20 years. And it's partly for cost-saving reasons, but it's also for making it easier to get rid of someone if they're no longer needed. So it's kind of like an on-demand labor model that's very similar to what's happening in the gig economy. And in fact, you know, some analysts have been talking about the Uberization of the university and how that may be the next step. So the number of casual staff proportional to full-time staff is the the, the figures are quite staggering. And a lot of it's happened behind the scenes, you know, it's kind of crept up on. It's surprising when you read the figures because you knew that Casual labour was part of the university business model, but most academics are truly surprised when they see the actual figures and the percentage that are actually used in the university for that reason.
2: It's that same boiling a frog process that we, I was talking about earlier. You know, I absolutely welcomed the opportunity and the hugely um, well paid hourly rate I was receiving as a PhD student compared to you know, other means I had for supplementing my income, which were effectively working for minimum wage in a pub. When I look at what's being paid to the individuals doing the work now, there's not, you know, I were one of them, I'd probably be working part-time in a pub. It's considerably less stressful. They'll, they'll actually end up with a better hourly rate when you factor in how long it's actually taking to do the marking as opposed to the, uh, the nominal time awarded for it. And again, I think this is all part of a, the same... In Brulio, that the, the peak pulls apart so nicely. I mean, it's in large part a product of the star system. It's it's not just the, the pure economics of uh, how can we do this cheaply and how can we you know hire and fire with relative ease. It's also how do we how do we feather a nest for those that we're going to pay a supernormal salary to to sit in the corner and write those uh, top rated publications to the detriment of all. I think.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's a system, isn't it? You know, you cannot have academics who are stars and who put in very little teaching or administrative service without a whole other peripheral labour force doing the hard yards in the lecture hall.
0: That was Peter Fleming and Simon Lilly on Radicals in Conversation. If you're enjoying this discussion and want to keep listening, then you can find the unabridged version of this and other episodes of the podcast on patreon.com forward slash plutopress. Of course, a reminder that you can get the new book, Dark Academia, How Universities Die, 50% off through plutobooks.com. You just need to use the coupon podcast at the checkout. We'll be back in a couple of weeks time for an episode looking at the world of work under capitalism. Our guests will be Amelia Horgan, Sarah Jaffe and Orlando Lazar. So do stay tuned for that. Until then, this has been Radicals and Conversation. Thank you all for listening and goodbye.